This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And this is Volume 2, The Ancient World. Episode 35, Ancient Medicine. years ago, most human societies were still living a nomadic, hunter-gatherer lifestyle, maybe living in groups of around 30 or 40 individuals, as a rough indication. The same theory applies to human societies going back for hundreds of thousands of years before this. Then, as we have learned, a very sudden change happened. Humankind entered the Neolithic, and lifestyles changed irreversibly. Humans started to change the genetic code of wild plants and animals into a domesticated variety. These were now unnatural crops and livestock. As humans settled into villages to protect their domesticated species, they started living in settled urban societies of hundreds and then thousands of individuals. This was an unnatural way of living, in large groups and in very close proximity to other species. In their new sedentary and agricultural ways of life, human beings would have to exert themselves physically and work hard to guarantee a yield. This would be an unnatural method of gathering food far from the hunter-gatherer methods that have been the norm for hundreds and thousands of years. The Neolithic revolution of human beings cannot be understated. It was a radical shift in human nature and human behaviour. It was so radical that there would be consequences for the human beings responsible. Unforeseeable consequences. If we look at archaeological evidence of human skeletons from before the Neolithic Revolution, they appear to be quite strong and healthy, which is something that might come as a bit of a surprise initially. However, if we think about this, there is no reason why they shouldn't be. Modern human beings had evolved into a successful animal over the course of the previous half a million years, and their lifestyles had not dramatically changed. The dramatic changes were yet to come, and the effect on our health would follow. The Paleolithic human being lived off a very natural diet, the same one that it had been eating for many thousands of years. Raw fruits and vegetables with meat and in some cases fish would have been the correct diet for the wild human being. As we discovered in the later episodes of Volume 1, human beings began to concentrate their efforts on preserving the growth of preferred wild plants, and this in turn would lead to human beings building permanent homes adjacent to those areas where their preferred wild plants could be nurtured and cultivated. 
human beings needed to protect those areas from other human tribes who would benefit from a guaranteed source of food. As families grew, it would not always make sense for offspring to leave the fertile settlement and so it is likely that the population would grow. And likewise, if strangers pledged to offer something useful to the settlement, such as successful merchant resources or building expertise, then they may have been invited to join the settlement. Within a few generations, it is possible that a couple of hundred people were living in adjoined buildings, much different from the smaller nomadic groups of years gone by. Also, human beings were keeping livestock close to their dwellings to prevent theft. So the close proximity of many humans and domestic animals would have not been a common nature. Infectious diseases of the modern age proliferate when human beings are in close proximity to each other and especially in a confined space. We always hear in the modern age that if someone has an infectious disease that it is best to keep your distance. Imagine what this is like before the Neolithic. You would spend most of your day outside and when you needed to rest you may spend time under shelter of a cave or similar. Fast forward to the Neolithic where people may spend most of their days in the confines and safety of the mud brick or rammed earth buildings where hundreds of others were also spending most of their time. Not only were there more people in the tribal group, but they were less likely to spend time in the open. This would have been ideal for infectious diseases which are likely to have become endemic. The young, infirm and elderly would have been particularly vulnerable. Before the Neolithic, humans would have hunted wild animals, but now they were kept in close proximity to human villages to prevent raiding. Never before had humans lived so close to other animals, so once again, this was very unnatural. Animal pathogens, which are the bacteria and viruses that carry disease, would have found new human hosts and as such there would be a wave of infectious diseases that would have been very successful in the close-knit Neolithic human villages. C. Justin Cook, a professor at the University of California, lists diseases in a published working draft from 2013 and it is believed that they could have proliferated within large human settlements containing animals. Diphtheria, influenza, measles, mumps, pertussis, rotavirus, smallpox and tuberculosis are listed on this paper. These are diseases that we seek to immunise our children from in the modern world. So if all of this is true, then these diseases were not a problem for human societies until the Neolithic Revolution, and we are still fighting them to this day. If we take this a stage further and consider that growing villages would have had a sanitation issue that needed addressing, then this would have further enhanced the ability for these diseases to spread if we consider that animal waste and carcasses and human waste would have needed to have been disposed of responsibly. Now, 
we may be able to understand why Bronze Age cities such as Mohenjo-Daro had such a well-considered drainage system, because the lack of one may have been the difference between their existing and epidemic of infectious disease. Neolithic Diet Catherine J. Latham of the University of Nebraska has also written a paper about human health and the Neolithic Revolution, and she has focused on some of the aspects of the change of our diet which deserves closer consideration. If you recall, back in episode 18 of volume 1, we were introduced to our Calcolithic friend, Utzi the Iceman, who was a European man who froze to death in the Alps over 5,000 years ago. The fact that his body was frozen meant that we could learn a great deal from his physical condition and the kind of lifestyle he was leading. One of the discoveries about Utzi was his dental condition which showed a large amount of grain consumption which had caused his teeth to rot away. Now, we wouldn't expect our teeth to simply rot away after many thousands of years of evolution should have made them fit for the foods that we eat. But Utzi's teeth condition is demonstrative of the diet of a man from an agricultural community. An observation that Catherine J. Latham has referred to in her paper also recognises a change in the general appearance of the skull of the post-Neolithic human being. It is believed that our skulls have become smaller since the Neolithic Revolution due to the fact that preferred foodstuffs are being prepared for consumption, meaning that the physical stress on our skulls and jawbones for chewing these foodstuffs is now significantly decreased compared to those required for the opportunistic diet of the hunter-gatherer. So, our Paleolithic skulls and teeth are not perfected for the Neolithic diet. Abrasion of our teeth is caused by the grainy foodstuffs of domesticated grasses such as wheat and barley. Our skulls did not need to be so powerful for our Neolithic diet of more ground down and cooked food and as such our skull size has reduced. So now we can see that there are consequences of the radical change of the Neolithic human being. It is possible that the more sedentary lifestyle would have meant that there was a general weakening of the human skeleton as less activity than is natural for a human being became normal. Scurvy would become more common which could lead to anemia. Both are health conditions that result from the body's inability to function normally, which is unsurprising when you consider that our lifestyles had changed dramatically. Even then we have mentioned another issue with the Neolithic lifestyle. We speak of grinding wheat and barley into grain and flour. And if this was your individual duty within your Neolithic village community, then you would have certainly paid a physical price for this continual labour. It is certainly not natural for human beings to be repetitively grinding food all day, 
every day. This is the kind of thing that will lead to joint pain, especially if individuals are more likely to be anemic and would certainly be the catalyst for conditions such as arthritis. In reality, our change from a hunter-gatherer lifestyle to a Neolithic lifestyle was far too radical for our bodies to adapt to, and we are seeing the consequences of this to our very unnatural human lifestyles to this day. Countermeasures We didn't talk at length about Lascaux Cave during Volume 1. Instead, we made unofficial mention of it during one of our unscripted episodes from early 2019. Lascaux Cave is the location of many late Paleolithic cave paintings and it is believed that some of them depict the preparation of medicinal herbs. Now, we do have to be extremely careful here as we do not have evidence of this but it is one acceptable expert interpretation. If this is the case, then we have to assume that medicinal usage of plants predates the Neolithic Revolution. Diseases and health conditions would have affected humans before the Neolithic Revolution, but what we have suggested in this podcast is that there would have been a significant proliferation of these things as a result of the Neolithic Revolution. With such a proliferation of disease, it would make sense that should somebody consume a foodstuff that would make them feel better, then others suffering the same ill effects would consume it too, in a bid to alleviate their own suffering. If it worked for the masses, then we have discovered a herbal remedy. Those who had expert knowledge of such herbal remedies would not only become an important medical practitioner of their society, but may have also been trusted to experiment with other natural plants in order to develop a broad range of treatments. This would be ideal for those suffering from illness, but what about those with broken bones and wounds beyond the realms of simple herbal medicine? We need to look at a practice which has been discovered time and time again in many different prehistoric sites in many places around the world. The practice is called trephination and it involves the drilling or scraping of the skull. Now, one book I have claims that trepanning was going on since 40,000 years ago but I have found nothing to triangulate this and most sources that I have come across suggest that this is a post-Neolithic kind of surgery. What we do know is that there is evidence of trepanning in the last 10,000 years in the Near East, the Far East and the Americas, so it must have been something that humankind believed in. We assume that this was a medical act carried out to ultimately reduce pain and suffering in the individual, but once again, we do not know this for sure. However, if we think logically about this and consider a human being that may have been suffering from intense migraines for example then it may seem logical that by drilling a hole in the skull that we could allow the pressure causing the migraine to escape. Trepanning is a dangerous surgery to perform. If performed incorrectly 
it can cause serious damage to the brain itself, resulting in huge issues for the patient. Grain-rich diets are packed full of carbohydrates that are not good for our teeth. And following the Neolithic Revolution, it would have been a problem as cavities in the teeth would have led to painful infections. This was an issue in every society that became agricultural and as such, toothache was a Neolithic nightmare wherever you came from. What was the answer? Well, in the same way that drilling through the skull was the answer to relieving pain in the head, Neolithic humans believed that the best way to cure toothache was to drill the tooth. This would expose the cavity and enable the prehistoric dentist to fill the drilled out cavity with material in what could be described as the first dental filling. One of the most notable discoveries was found in Pakistan dating to around 8,000 years ago. The drilling was accurate and undoubtedly carried out with skill which demonstrates that there was likely to have been an expert dentist living within their society. The Bronze Age Things would become progressively worse for human beings as life transitioned firstly from hunter-gatherer to Neolithic and then Neolithic to Bronze Age. The Bronze Age saw villages turn into cities in which food preparation became an industry of its own. Human diets had become higher in carbohydrates but it would become lower in fibre and higher in salt and fat. This would create more instances of high blood pressure, heart disease and even cancers. These are still problems that we see all too often in today's societies and were exacerbated in the first place by the Neolithic Revolution. Likewise, there is no evidence of pre-Neolithic human beings suffering from strokes or osteoporosis, which is linked to the weakening of the bones and could be encouraged by anemia, which is something we referred to earlier. So we can see that although we were aware of initial effects of the change of diet and lifestyle of human beings at the Neolithic, that this would have become worse as we further developed and that primary effects could lead to secondary problems. The change in our nature was too much to avoid upsetting the fine balance of our bodies. Sometimes it would be too much for human beings to try to prevent issues when secondary issues were already happening. A good example of this would be the development of good sanitation, which is something we mentioned earlier in the podcast in relation to Mohenjo-Daro, the city in modern Pakistan created by the Indus Valley Civilization during the second millennium BCE. We also found very advanced methods of water and waste drainage in the densely populated Minoan site of Knossos on the Greek island of Crete in around the same period. In the same millennium we have evidence of a similar creation in the Olmec city of San Lorenzo in the modern country of Mexico. Drainage must have been very important and a key way to combat diseases, 
carried in human and animal waste. However, it may not have been just enough for humans to avoid contact with contaminated waste or water due to the fact that rats, fleas and lice could carry the disease from the waste to the human. Therefore it was not enough to avoid contact yourself. You had to have a clean city to avoid epidemics and this would explain why city drainage systems became very advanced very quickly. It was essential for survival. In a prosperous city, these problems may be problems, but they may be manageable problems. Diseases such as anthrax would have been difficult to manage due to the abundance of livestock around settlements. Imagine a city that could not manage itself properly due to failing crop yields or warfare, for example. The populations may not have had the ability to manage their city well as a consequence and sanitation efforts may have deteriorated. Diseases such as plague and typhoid could run wild in such cases and it may not be out of the question that some of the abandoned cities of ancient times could have been to escape disease as much as anything else. Ebers Papyrus Back in episode 15, on the New Kingdom of Ancient Egypt, we introduced something called the Ebers Papyrus. The Ebers Papyrus has been named after the German Egyptologist who was able to acquire this historic scripture in the 1870s. His name is Georg Ebers, born in the Prussian capital city of Berlin in 1837. The papyrus itself dates back to the middle of the 2nd millennium BCE. It is 20 metres long and lists around 700 medical and cultural remedies. For example, to protect your clothing from being eaten by rats, you can apply cat's fat to them to keep them safe. If you are an asthma sufferer, then the papyrus recommends heating herbs laid on a brick, with the subject encouraged to inhale the fumes. It even advises that the consumption of half an onion alongside the froth of beer was a good remedy for those who wished to avoid death. So from the reasonable explanation of how herbal remedies could have originated by simple trial and error in the early Neolithic, we now have a huge list of remedies, some of which have to be considered as harebrained. Either these remedies were passed down by previous generations of chemists, or they were just thrown into this papyrus in a bid to make this encyclopedic scroll look like the most comprehensive medicinal script ever. The Ebers papyrus is just one of many different medical papyri discovered from 2nd millennium BCE Egypt. Collectively these papyri contained medical remedies but also they contained remedies which have been described as magic. This should not be very surprising when you consider that shamanic practices 
had been taking place for many thousands of years. Humans appreciated the hope given by these remedies and were much more likely to welcome them with open arms than question them. Back in episode 18 where we discussed Egyptian mummification, we also mentioned how those preparing the bodies for mummification used metal hooks to draw the brains of the deceased out through the nostrils. Ancient tools have been discovered that seem to be suitable for surgery, but the quiz is whether these tools were intended for use on the dead or the living or both. One of the more mysterious aspects of the Ebers papyrus is the Egyptian approach to cancer. The papyrus suggests that the best approach is to do nothing. Anybody that is thought to be approaching death would have been left to die without treatment. The only treatment would have been to make them as comfortable as possible. If Egyptians believed strongly in the afterlife, then maybe death wasn't something that they feared. On the flip side, we learned earlier that there were remedies that helped to prevent death too. The people of the ancient world recognised disease but found it difficult to understand. In the modern world, we have the benefits of modern medicine to explain many of the known ailments. In the ancient world, it wasn't so easy to explain. As with many of the wonders of the prehistoric and ancient world, people would have attributed disease to supernatural forces. Maybe disease was a punishment from the gods, or otherwise it could have been just the possession of somebody by an evil spirit. As a result, those ancient medical practitioners would have had to have possessed some knowledge of shamanic ritual in order to exorcise the evil spirits, such as incantations. The Ebers Papyrus supports this. As for herbal remedies, they did not only exist in ancient Egypt. There is evidence of herbal medicines in Sumeria, the Indus Valley, the Americas and then onwards to ancient Greece and Rome, as well as ancient China. It was logical to all ancient human societies to look for ancient remedies and they still make up part of the scope of traditional methods to this very day. It makes sense that humans would accidentally discover the medicinal value in some herbs and it is with that in mind that we can find it acceptable for herbal remedies to become an important part of healthcare with some areas being set aside for the cultivation of herbs in ancient cities. We can find a long history of usage of herbs such as chastebury to combat the ill effects of premenstrual symptoms. Salicylic acid, as the name would suggest, is extracted from the willow tree, and one form of salicylic acid called acetylsalicylic acid is more commonly known today as aspirin. We know that willow extract is mentioned in the Ebers papyrus, so we have some direct and definite links between ancient remedies and today's remedies. Personally, I come from England, which is well known as a country where the people love their tea. A nice cup of tea 
can relieve the thirst and tension as well as anything. And so we should not be surprised to note that tea drinking for medicinal purposes is an ancient remedial tradition of the Chinese. Beyond the Ancient World It won't be long now before this podcast has to take its inevitable step from the ancient world into the classical world. And this will represent a period of scientific enlightenment as knowledge will become power and influence and intelligence will lead to the debate of long-held spiritual ideas of the past. There seems to be much more rational approach to dealing with medical issues and less evidence of shamanic incantations, for example. It wasn't just in one area of the world that we can notice significant advances in the science of medicine. The Vedic civilizations of India, the Han Dynasty of China, and what is scholarly referred to as the ancient periods of Greece, which we will confusingly cover in the next volume, are all cited as civilizations of great intellectual and academical advances in surgical and medicinal technology and industry. Despite all of these necessary advances, it was still not enough to turn back the clock of the Neolithic Revolution and the devastating effect on human health. A great plague in 5th century BCE Athens, in which victims would contract symptoms and be dead within a week, was responsible for the death of over 30,000 citizens. City life has only existed in the last 6,000 years of modern humans 300,000 years on this planet. That is just the most recent 2% of our time on planet Earth, following the previous 98% of life without cities. Plagues and epidemics have been frequent occurrences since and mainly due to our modern and more unnatural way of life. The last 10,000 years of human history have shaped the disease and ailment-ridden human race of the modern world. One very popular form of healthcare which gained popularity in Han China was the practice of acupuncture and it was possible that a similar kind of treatment was discovered to have been carried out on the 5,000 plus year old body of Utsi, the Iceman, whom we discussed earlier in the podcast. Utsi had over 60 tattoos, and due to the locations of the tattoos, we suggest that they may have been in response to Utsi's painful arthritic joints. So if we look at this, as an early form of acupuncture designed to relieve the pain of arthritic joints. And we suggest that arthritis is something that became more common in a Neolithic world where humans had created many unnatural and repetitive manual physical tasks for themselves in order to survive in this irreversibly altered world. Then even before the ancient world of the last 5,000 years, we can already see the price that humans were paying for the radical Neolithic revolution. And Utsi, the Iceman, 
illustrates this with his rotten teeth thanks to his post-Neolithic diet and his arthritis thanks to his post-Neolithic way of life. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode. I'd be interested in what you thought of it, actually. It's quite grim, a little bit morbid. Perhaps it's a little bit depressing in terms of the fact that our lifestyles have changed so radically in the last 10,000 years and we haven't really had a lot of good things to say about it in this week's episode. We just seem to be talking about grim consequences so be interested to know what you feel about it all and uh, obviously the the message forum is there and uh, the media pages are there be f- uh, feel free feel free to send me a message or to post something on the media sites it, it's great to see discussions being opened up and it's great to hear your personal opinions about everything that's going on in these episodes so please 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 do get in touch So as I was teasing uh, last week, we now have six of our podcast episodes that have been converted into YouTube videos by Nick Barksdale of the Study of Antiquity and the Middle Ages YouTube channel. If you want to see any of those videos, then please do go over and uh, have a look. There's a link in the interact section on the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website Uh, to the the History of the World podcast channel which uh, has a playlist with these six videos in it or you can link directly through to the individual videos by uh, identifying them on the volume 2 page of our website. There's also the facility to access the Patreon page where you can make monthly donations to the podcast and this helps me to produce better podcasts going forward to invest in equipment and material that can really aid the podcast and help me to keep it going. So please do consider a financial donation. Go over to the Patreon page, see what rewards there are for those who contribute regularly and likewise if you cannot make a financial contribution then rating and reviewing the podcast in your chosen podcast platform is also quite valuable so please consider one or the other help keep the podcast going now i'd just like to say a special thank you also to those of you get in touch with me and send me links and information that uh, relate to the content of the podcast i really really do appreciate it and often I ask uh, that the content be posted on the media pages. I'd really like to see um, the listeners interacting with each other as much as they're interacting with me. So uh, you all have a lot to offer each other. So don't be scared to put it out there and, you know, we can discuss things. We're all quite nice people, actually, on the media pages and not so much on YouTube. You tend to get um, a good slating on YouTube. It seems to be a very bizarre community of people that operate on YouTube. But other than that, the History of the World podcast Facebook page is a very healthy communication forum and I enjoy um, listening and, and reading some of the stuff that comes th- comes through to me on that. So don't be scared to post stuff on the page uh one in all in and and you're all welcome and uh, let's uh, share all of this wonderful history with each other now eduardo hornboggle got in touch with me through the fact that that can't be a real name that can't be a real name surely um well anyway he got in touch with me and uh 
sent me an article about what the Denisovans look like and um, very interesting there's been a lot of progress made in terms of uh, certainly the the prehistoric angles that we discussed in volume one and it might be worth us during the interval between volume two and volume three catching up with some of that kind of stuff and trying to sort of update the latest discoveries and um, you know just try and piece together some of the missing parts that have been discovered throughout 2019 sort of a news update if you like we'll have to look into and address that um, also just like to thank um, a listener called uh, Elizabeth who got in touch with me through the Tapper Talk forum which is the discussion forum where we've got plenty of discussions about various aspects of history open at the moment. She's put, um, Hi Chris, great podcast, so excited to listen to everything you put out. I have a suggestion. It would be nice to have a key words in the podcast notes to refer to while listening to each episode. This would help with listening comprehension. Being able to see the unfamiliar terms while we hear them. For example, in the episode about prehistoric tools, the key words would be Acheulean and Olduwan. For example, um, oh, oh, sorry, for the episode about early hominins, the words would be the ones like Australopithecus and Paranthropus. Thanks, Elizabeth. I think that's an excellent suggestion. I, I do get quite concerned, and certainly when Nick's, Nick Barksdale um, re, uh, redoes my episodes in video form, I often offer to send him the transcript so that he can identify the exact words that I'm saying and how to spell them. So I do think there's a lot in that message, Elizabeth, and I thank you for that. I will look into what I can do and maybe sort of do some retrospective keyword notes or, or something of that nature. I just need to work out what I think the best way to set about it is. With the amount of platforms that we're broadcasting on at the moment, I just need to make sure that everything migrates in a, in a way that is uh, good and beneficial for the podcast. But thanks for the message, a cracking message. Thank you, Elizabeth. Also received a kind message from Josh from Los Angeles who um, sent me an email saying, love your podcast, been searching for something like this for a while. It scratches my itch for my need to hear human history in a chronological order. I've done a lot of my own research over the years because I enjoy building historical mods for video games. I appreciate all the research that you've done and your effort to keep this podcast as unbiased as possible keep it up thanks josh that's a a great message and i really do appreciate the sentiment so thank you very much well that's it again for another week and thank you ever so much to everyone who's been listening to the podcast i can see that this week we've had more listens to the podcast than we ever have had in one week so uh, the popularity of the podcast is growing and uh, i can't thank you enough for that don't forget, recommend it to your friends and family and um, likewise, rate and review the podcast. It really does help. Next week is going to be the summary of the ancient world and I've now got to go away and figure out how I'm going to cram 2,000 uh, years of fascinating history into half an hour. Uh, wish me luck. I'll see you next week. Thank you. The History of the World podcast is available on many different podcast platforms. So please don't forget 
to rate and review us wherever you find us. Visit our website at historyoftheworldpodcast.com and email us at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. Support the podcast at Patreon by clicking the Support the Podcast link at our website and join us on social media at Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr.